Lovers, this episode is sponsored by Blue Chew. We all know that there is more to confidence in the bedroom or the kitchen or the sex club or a stairwell or the woods or wherever you are. There's so much more to sex wherever you do it than just jackhammering away. But if all you're missing in your relationship is some mutually beneficial stiffness, check out BlueChew.com. BlueChew is a unique online service that delivers the same active ingredients as Viagra, Cialis, and Levitra, but in chewable tablets and at a fraction of the cost. You can take them anytime, day or night, so you can plan ahead or be ready whenever an opportunity arises. The process is simple. Sign up at BlueChew.com, consult with one of their licensed medical providers, and once you are approved, you'll receive your prescription within days. The best part? It's all done online, so no visits to the doctor's office with the doctors that never got trained in sex ed and how to talk to people about it, plus no waiting in line at the pharmacy. Blue Chew's tablets are made in the USA and prepared and shipped direct to your door in a discreet pack. They say that there is nothing sexier than confidence, and Blue Chew can help give you confidence where it counts. Of course, I know you sweet listeners know that using confidence to connect, if you can be confident enough to be really vulnerable with someone, to communicate, to create a safe space that you occupy together, that is super hot. That's the foundation of a connection. And if you have a boner, that can definitely help you do certain things that you know that I love, just as long as you don't skip all the other stuff too. Blue Chew and I want you to have better sex. Discover your options at bluechew.com. And as they say, chew it and do it. And we've got a special deal for our listeners. Try Blue Chew free when you use our promo code LOVER. At checkout, you just pay $5 shipping. That is bluechew.com promo code LOVER to receive your first month free. Visit bluechew.com for more details and important safety information. And thank you to Blue Chew for sponsoring the podcast. I'm getting vaccinated with Prevnar 20, a Pfizer vaccine. So am I, because I'm at risk for pneumococcal pneumonia. If you're 19 or older with chronic conditions like asthma, diabetes, COPD, or heart disease, or are 65 or older, you are at increased risk for pneumococcal pneumonia. Ask your doctor or pharmacist about Prevnar 20, pneumococcal 20-valent conjugate vaccine. It can help protect you against pneumococcal pneumonia in just one dose. Even if you've already been vaccinated with other pneumonia vaccines, Prevnar 20 may help provide added protection. Prevnar 20 is approved for adults to help prevent infections from 20 strains of the bacteria that cause pneumococcal pneumonia. Continued approval may depend on a supportive study. Don't get Prevnar 20 if you've had a severe allergic reaction to the vaccine or its ingredients. Adults with weakened immune systems may have a lower response to the vaccine. Side effects include pain and swelling at the injection site, fatigue, headache, muscle, and joint pain. For full prescribing information, please call 1-855-213-2138 or visit Prevnar20.com. Hello, lovely humans. I'm Wyo Lee, and you are listening to Sex Stories, a podcast where we interview some of the most incredible writers, performers, educators, and human advocates in an effort to learn about pleasure-filled connections. And our guest today happens to be all of those things in one awesome package. She is a white Jewish cis femme who is non-monogamous, queer, and loves cucks, subs, and power play. She's done a lot of robot roleplay, which I am so excited to hear about, is interested in nun and religious play, has stories of teaching blowjob workshops, cold reading other people's kinks on the fly, and talking about sex with strangers, my favorite. Past sexy jobs include sex shop worker, which I really feel like we need a better name for because it includes a fuck ton of sex education, both receiving and giving. And she also has worked as a phone sex operator, a writer, burlesque performer, social worker, and all-around creative genius from the East Coast, and author of Naked on Sex Work and Other Burlesques, which I just read and is truly a wonderful collection of sex stories. Go get it. Go read it. If you get it from the library, make sure to tip her in some way, shape, or form. Welcome, fancy feast 
Hell yeah. Thanks for having me. <laughs> I am so excited that you are here today. Can you start off by telling us if you had to rate yourself today on a shameometer with one being, I don't have any shame, and 10 being like, oh yeah, so shamey, where are you today and why did you pick that number? Oh, I'm pretty high up on the shame meter. Really? I know. Shocking, right? We're starting off. With I like am a, shocked. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My shame is not a sexual shame. I will say that. My sexual yeah, yeah. shame is at zero. It usually is. But like in terms of just like general shame, yeah, like higher than usual. Maybe like a seven. Okay. When does it fluctuate? Okay. So not so much with the sex, but like how do you, I am trying to figure out shame. I feel it in funny places. I gather by talking to people, but I would love to just hear a little bit about your roller coaster of shame. Oh, okay. So let's see. I have been in breakup season. Mm. And so one of the things that I've been doing this breakup season is really taking the opportunity to do a deep personal inventory. And so that is accompanied by discovering things about myself that I, I thought I knew and did not actually know. So there's been a lot of sort of breaking open this season. And it's shame and curiosity. Like I do feel like there's a certain kind of shame that like forecloses on curiosity. But then there's a shame that's like, how did I not know this about myself? You know, I'm supposed to be so self-aware. So that's kind of where I'm at right now. Yeah, like, yeah. a what is that? Like an auto-sociological shame. Wow. Okay. And then tell us about your sexy zero shame, though. Like, did that start with the work at the sex shop? Like, what was kind of just the overall arc of your personal sexual shame? I was not taught to hate myself or to be scared of sexuality. Sexual discussion was like fine and not stigmatized in my family growing up. My mother used to like work the phones for Planned Parenthood in the 60s. -hmm. So I had sort of like a hippie upbringing around sexuality, as well as being raised religiously in a Jewish tradition. Jews love talking about sex and love holding themselves in contrast to Catholics or things like that, like religions that play with sexual shame that require sexual shame. I didn't know that. Yeah. There's like this whole like, it's like, oh, well, like sex is considered a mitzvah in the Torah. It's like considered a good deed, particularly if it's considered satisfying. Like if you can make somebody come, that's a mitzvah. So I was like, great, early adopter of that kind of vibe. And so I didn't realize that we had a culture that hated bodies and hated sex until much later. And by then I felt like my goose was kind of cooked. Yeah, yeah. And then you are such a uniquely creative human being. I want to ask you a version of this question I've never asked anyone. Your artistry, was there ever difficulty in coming out around that? And in Fancy's book, you can read about like early performance origins and some of the stuff that got shoved on you. But like, overall, you talked about it being difficult to write, but like, how do you experience, if at all, shame and your artistry? I think there's some A-B testing. Like, When you're taking off your clothes for strangers, having shame be a dominant mode is not advantageous. So there's a certain sense of like, it's really not going to all come out well. I'm baking without a recipe. Sometimes it doesn't rise. Okay, didn't didn't win this round or like, oh, the audience hated me or hated this. I'm like, got it. Okay. So how do I tweak it or like, do I want to keep this? Do I want to discard this? But that's not shame. That's just sort of like experimentation. Yeah, yeah. Around writing, I didn't really experience a lot of shame. I had some frustration. There were thoughts that felt really beautiful when I was on the toilet or on the subway or in the (laughs) shower or wherever. And then by the time I got to my laptop, I was like, oh, it's just garbage that's coming out. But it Mm. wasn't because I'm bad or anything like that. It was just this, it's difficult to translate ephemeral experiences into written word. 
Yeah, yeah. Although I do want to like insert my own opinion here and say, I really love your words. I think you are a gifted words person, personally. And I read a lot of books. I read maybe three to six books a week. <laughs> oh, hell yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I appreciate your words. Okay, tell us now, what is sex to fancy? Sex to fancy. Sex to fancy is a, is a place to try shit out, let shit go, to be really embodied and experience sensation, like to tap into creativity and fun, tell stories together. Like to be connected. It's so many different things. It's wonderful. I love that answer. Same vein, but a little bit different. What is sexy to you? What is sexy to me? You mean besides money? <laughs> it's so sexy. I love getting <laughs> concretely valued. That's hot. Go to Fancy Feast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a living wage is number one. Yes. Healthcare. Yes. I find generosity to be really sexy. I find vulnerability to be really sexy. Creativity. Empathy. Mm. Whatever. I mean, I could get, I could get pedantic, like body hair, but like, you yeah, know, just no, I like all of it. it. All of yeah, it is good. It. Wait, you do think body hair is sexy? Fuck yeah, I do. I love it. Like sometimes when someone does have body hair that I like, because I like all of it, right? I'm like, if you're comfy, then I will appreciate you. I have been known to pretend that I'm a goat and will just like, you know, not like chew off the hair on their arm, but just like play with it because it's another spot to have sensations. So I'm with you there. Is there a particular type of body hair you find the sexiest? Well, I'm kind of a chest hair queen. Yeah, big fan of that. But like, it's all good to me. Mm. Yeah. I, I don't know. That. It just, it feels really nice. And we're also, it's the winter time. So I think I'm like craving some totally. body hair near me. <laughs> You're closing me up. <laughs> Give me yeah. your personal blanket. Okay. Tell us now, if you can articulate it, how important is sex in your life? Sex is really fundamental in my life, but that doesn't mean having sex. I've gone through periods of time where I've had more and had less and had years where I don't have sex at all. And while I've been working in the sex industry, while I've been writing about sex. So it's something that is part of my life and my livelihood that is part of my like desire for my life and part of my personal practice. But it doesn't always find itself as like a goal per se. It's one of the colors that I paint with. Beautiful. Can you give us a little snippet overview of what your sex education was like and then maybe contrast it with what you wish modern sex ed was like? Absolutely. My first sex ed came from my mother, which was really wonderful, open, non-judgmental, and age-appropriate starting from when I was like two or three. Mm. And then I had a copy of Our Bodies Ourselves. So I was an autodidact. I was able to like look things up as I had curiosity and then when I got to school, in middle school, I had something called awareness of growth, which – Good name. <laughs> yeah, love how vague. And like my PE teacher taught it and it was like very uncomfortable and they started talking about like the existence of periods, but it was like two years after I'd gotten mine. So I was like mm. too little too late. And then in high school, I remember my guidance counselor putting a condom on a wooden dowel and not being able to get it off. So she had to like put it between her knees to like – work it out, sort of wow. doing the jerk off motion, which iconic, like, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> How wonderful for a, a class of 10th graders to get to see and experience that. It really did leave something to be desired, but it also was in the context of a private school. So mm -hmm. I wasn't beholden to like state guidelines around abstinence being part of the curriculum, for example. Like I did get sex ed that acknowledged, you know, the existence of 
STIs and contraception and that people are going to be sexually active. We didn't talk about queerness or transness and we didn't really talk about consent and we certainly didn't talk about pleasure. So those are some major topics that I feel like probably would have been beneficial. And then when I moved to New York and started working at a sex toy store, the sex shop really takes sex education seriously and and the onboarding process was comprehensive sex ed, like whatever I thought I was getting times a million. I got so inspired reading that part. I was like, I want to. And then afterward, you said all the terrible parts of working at a sex shop. And I was like, right, right. Don't do everything related to sex. Stop it. Stop it. But do you feel comfortable saying what sex shop you worked at? Or is that explicitly not included on purpose? Oh, you know, I redacted it just in case they were going to like sue me, but they haven't. Okay. So it's Babeland. I was the education coordinator there for years. That's awesome. And then also, yeah, help them unionize. That's awesome. Okay. So again, listeners, go listen to the book or read the book with your eyeballs. Both versions are good. They're both good. I checked them out. Tell us now what health and safety practices do you need to feel safe with a lover? So health and safety practices, having a conversation about our relationship to barriers, our relationship to risk-taking, our relationship to body fluids. There's a lot that's sort of negotiable as long as we are being open and on the same page. I'm not a hard and fast, like condoms always, or like no dental dams ever, or whatever whatever the thing is. Like there's, yeah. I'm willing to do a lot of different things as long as there is open discourse about it and understanding that we are both engaging in a level of risk that feels acceptable and appropriate to us. I was talking to a boyfriend about this and he's like, yeah, when I say safety, I don't mean safety like, you know, being at home in a hazmat suit or something like that. It's like this, what I mean is like safety as in what a skydiver does. That it's like acknowledging that that I'm doing something that involves an inherent level of risk and taking all the precautions necessary to minimize that while not sort of reducing my possibilities for like joy and openness. I really feel that. And it also sounds just listening to you, it sounds like trust building is a part of that. Absolutely. These days, if I don't trust you, I'm not going to fuck you. There were other times in my life where other things would have been true. But these days, like I am too busy. So anybody who makes it in has to be worth having this conversation with. I love that. Okay, not to get lost in the weeds, but I would love to hear what criteria of trust, right? Because trust is so big. And so like, what are kind of the main components for a sexual relationship or a personal relationship that might include sex? Like what flags, green flags are you looking for? Green flags that I'm looking for are openness and not having a lot of shame or stigma around talking about one's sexual practices, testing practices and partners, for example, both in terms of being able to deliver that information and receive that information from somebody else. Somebody who is good at hearing and adhering to boundaries So someone who's not going to try to push the issue if there's something that is a non-negotiable for me or for somebody else. And a sense of fun and possibility within the sort of guidelines that are created. So the idea that these are agreements that are keeping us as safe as possible, that doesn't reduce our ability to have fun with each other. And so if it's treated like, what a chore, then that means to me that the person is not really worth fucking. Yeah, it's like a disqualifier. You're like, oh, mm-hmm. okay, no thanks. Can you give us just a little snippet of like what are health and safety conversations like for you? Are you usually the initiator? Are there any like phrases or words that you find very helpful? You don't have to take us through the full thing, but just like any 
key moments there? Oh, yeah. It kind of rolls off my tongue these days. And I think that has a lot to do with so many years working in sex education. But I'll volunteer the information first that like, I think a lot of people feel put on the spot if it's like, hey, when were you last tested? Yeah, that that sure. sort of sets things up in, a, in an in- interrogation kind of context. So to say like, okay, so it's been, you know, whatever, like I, I last got tested this month and my results were this. It's like, oh, I tested positive for HPV like 10 years ago and cleared it nine years ago. And that's been my sexual health history or whatever. I want to use condoms if we're doing penetration or using any toys. And I want to put down a puppy pad or whatever, whatever the thing yeah. is. And like, oh, I love that. how do you feel about that? Does that work for you? It doesn't really need to be particularly complicated. Beautiful. I love that. And even just hearing the example in your voice and your demeanor, I think is so helpful personally. So before we dive into all of your details, broadly speaking, how are you making the world a sexier, more loving place? <laughs> These days, I'm not so sure. I mean, I... <laughs> I'll thinking about your book. I'm going to answer for you that your book. Oh, like, that's easy. Okay. It's doing the work for you. But like, it's really good. <laughs> yeah, it's been really special to have something that is concrete, that exists. It's reaches like much farther than, for example, like a room full of people that I could meet on stage. Like we all would have to be in the same geographic location in the same time in order for the message to work. But in this case, like, there's a library in Skokie where my book is checked out and I'm thinking about that person in Skokie. So like being able to write down and record my experiences in the sexual underground and in nightlife spaces and in spaces that are marginal or proximal to the sex industry or within the sex industry and to do so in a way that feels as emotionally complex and complete as I can do, as I have experienced it, feels like the kind of contribution that I want to make to the sex world. I am not interested in the sort of flattened narratives around it is purely empowering and purely always a good time to be, you know, a sexy worker. Neither is it all terrible exploitation, like a nightmare, but that like reality so often exists in between, but we don't have that attitude toward nuance when people are talking about sexuality. There's a desire to categorize it into a sort of black and white mode. I think that makes things sexier, allowing things to exist in their complication and nuance. Yeah. I think you really nailed a lot of nuance because I had such... So I've been like researching sex anecdotally through books, through people for five years, Mm -hmm. like straight. I was doing a mixture of listening to and reading with eyeballs your book. And there was a part where you talked about sex workers and gave kind of like an example. I can't even remember what the parallel was, but you were just like, they're they're not going to be harming children. Like you really, every time there was like a point, the way that you unpacked it for people, I thought was so clear and so both sides. And then through your own experiences, I saw a person who was able to like have in some cases like really difficult, but also really beautiful experiences. And I loved that it was never just like, the story of self-judgment at any moment. It was like there was space for all of it. And I do think that that way of sharing is a great example to make the world sexier and more loving. Both relationally and towards yourself too, right? Like it was, it's, yeah. So, okay. So I really want to direct listeners to your professional origin story, I think is very clearly outlined in the book. I love the way that you, oh, but you know what I would like to know? How did you decide what order to put the chapters in? Because it's not chronological. No, it's not. I wanted the book to take readers from 
one sort of state of being to another. Like I knew the feeling that I wanted at the beginning of the book and at the end, because it's a similar feeling that I try to offer in my striptease performances. Oh, I was going to add, yeah, yeah. Okay. I thought that, great. (laughs) That like people think they're coming for this thing that is entertaining and tawdry and sexy and glamorous. And I want them to get that. Like that's important to me. All of that is true. But what I also want to bring people to is this place of emotional catharsis and this use of nudity, in my case, as a metaphor for other kinds of discovery or transformation. And so that arc really guided the order of the essays. So we started off a little bit lighter and a little bit talking more about showbiz. Over time, things deepen. And then by the time I get back to striptease, the the meaning of the striptease has really completely transformed and is intended to be like very sort of deeply emotional. And then I also have my editor to thank for that. She's amazing. And so she was really good at, I mean, there were many essays that I wrote for the book that are not in the book. Mm -hmm. And there are, are moments where she was like, I feel like this needs another, like there's another 10 pages here that you need to write for us to get to this next beat. Oh, I love that. Yeah, she's fantastic. So I had some really, really good help. But yeah, it's intended to be a, a long-form striptease of sorts. Yeah, because I think I emailed you very excited a third of the way in, and then I got to chapter six, and I was like, oh, this is a storyteller. Like, like you know, and I and then I discovered more just artistic things that we had in common with film school and all of that, and I was like, damn, and yeah, really beautifully done. But I'm wondering if maybe there are things that didn't make it into the book from your own personal formative years that might feel relevant, you know, like... What shaped you into the sexual being you are, maybe starting from childhood? Yeah, I I had written about my family. Like there was a whole essay about them. And I felt precious about it. I felt really protective of them. And also of, of having my family appear in the same book alongside some of my sort of more notable sexual exploits. Like thinking about how that melange would sit. And my editor was like, you're being too protective of them. Like it's not an interesting story <laughs> if you're just going to be nice. Yeah, yeah. So that was that was removed. But like obviously my, my family of origin had a massive influence on who I am and what my values are. There was an essay about working out and sort of experiencing my body through weightlifting, how that also sort of transformed body image stuff, which, you know, is great context if someone's really interested in me and my life but doesn't move people through the narrative that we were constructing through the essays. I didn't really write a lot about my childhood, which is not to say that I don't think about my childhood or that it it hasn't been influential. I just was like, I don't want to write about my childhood in my cum book, you know? (laughs) That's fair. That's totally fair. I do always ask people about formative experiences, you know, firsts of touching themselves or playing with partners in consensual, you know, choice-driven ways. Is there anything about that kind of like era of your life that feels like relevant to fancies sex stories? Absolutely. I taught my entire bunk of fellow campers at Jewish Girls Overnight Camp how to masturbate. Uh, they thought that you had to have a dick to masturbate. And I had just figured it out that summer. So I was like, there's no way I'm going to like leave this knowledge on the table. So I drew a diagram of a vulva and I explained the clit and I talked about it. And the next morning, one of my fellow campers was like, hey, thanks. (laughs) 
obviously word got out because it was like the exciting thing that I had like taught everybody how to masturbate. I thought my counselor was going to get me in trouble or anything, but she was just so lovely and open and excited about it. And so then we created a big vulva made out of masking tape and we put it on her door. So she was on board. It was really nice. That's amazing. I'm Well, first of all, I wish I had gone to camp with you. And second of all, like <laughs> one of my like big life dreams, who knows if we'll get there, is to create some sort of like sex camp, you know, for adults. And then maybe there's like the creative oriented, age appropriate part that is family oriented over there, you know, because I, I meet so many people through the course of this work who like do want, you know, more hands-on tutorials, maybe not just a big paper vulva, but that's so cool. Anything else from formative experiences that like taught you about your own body or just other people that feels fun to share? I remember being frantically called upon to help my my friend in high school give a hand job for the first time. That like she met somebody and was like really excited about him, but had no idea what to do with a penis when she saw one. So like she and I each had like bottles of lotion and sort of used the bottles as sort of mock penises. And so I was like guiding her on some techniques and like who was I? I had not ever given a hand job when I was talking about this. So I don't really know where I was getting my information from, but it, it was like, I was already doing all of this. So then when I started doing like hand job and blow job workshops at Babeland, I was like, oh yeah, like <laughs> finally I'm getting paid for this thing that I've been giving away for free for a year. <laughs> That's amazing. How did you learn? Like what was your personal learning method? Just being a pervert, I think. <laughs> I watched a lot of porn and okay. I was really interested in like educational porn, like a lot of the sort of old school, like Nina Hartley, like how to kind of porn that was really meaningful to me, like as a much younger person. And so between that and books like Our Bodies Ourselves, where there were diagrams and explanations, I kind of just like was able to put two and two together and I could talk about like sensitive parts of the anatomy and like, yeah, different techniques. Damn. Who knows what I was doing? I mean, I don't know if it was good. It might not have, you may not have wanted like the well, who knows, right? But like, I only read Nina Hartley's book a year and a half ago. And, you know, and I still have like a huge list of edu porn that I'm researching because like my passion is now like, how do I create more edu erotic content, but also cross off my bucket list at the same time? Who will do this task with me? You know, how do I make sure that what I put on camera is, you know, with a background as a filmmaker, like I want to do the artistry of communicating the emotional arc of what I'm experiencing. And then as a sex nerd, I want to kind of like make sure that the informational bits are there because I also connect with people through information. Lovers, this episode is sponsored by Blue Chew. We all know that the foundation to an awesome sex life is excellent mental and physical health. But if proper rest, exercise, and a healthy lifestyle aren't leading to the blood flow you'd like when and where you'd like it, check out bluechew.com. Blue Chew is a unique online service that delivers the same active ingredients as Viagra, Cialis, and Levitra, but in chewable tablets at a fraction of the cost. You can take them anytime, day or night, so you can plan ahead or be ready whenever the opportunity arises. And the process is simple. Sign up at BlueChew.com, consult with one of their licensed medical providers, and once you are approved, you'll receive your prescription within days. The best part, it's all done online, so no visits to the doctor's office, no dealing with awkward physicians who aren't trained to talk about sex lives, plus no waiting in line at the pharmacy. Blue Chew's tablets are made in the USA and prepared and shipped direct to your door in a discreet pack. They always say first impressions are important, but what about lasting impressions? Lovers, I do believe that we can always make loving, lasting impressions by connecting and being present and chasing our pleasure and our partner's pleasure. 
And if your priority is making a deep, deep impression between two beautiful, enthusiastic thighs or cheeks in the name of partnered pleasure, I get it. I've worn a strap on now. I, too, love having a hard cock. Blue Chew and I want you to have better sex. Discover your options at BlueChew.com. Chew it and do it. And we've got a special deal for our listeners. Try Blue Chew free when you use our promo code LOVER at checkout. You just pay $5 for shipping. That is BlueChew.com promo code LOVER to receive your first month free. Visit BlueChew.com for more details and important safety information. And thank you to Blue Chew for sponsoring the podcast. What is it like teaching a blowjob workshop? Like I would just, and how many times have you done it? And are you bored yet? And like, what do you, what's it been like to share some stories? I have taught several hundred blowjob workshops. I, I've lost count. I don't know. Because I was the education coordinator. And so I would run the workshops. So it was sort of defaulted to me to teach when there wasn't a teacher available or when I wanted to pick up some extra cash. And in the sex shop, what it looked like was setting up 60 fold-out chairs in the retail space after hours. And I would have like half an hour to turn the store over and like move all the islands and all that kind of stuff. And then I would be standing on a concrete slab with a co-teacher. And usually the first few years, one of us had a strap on with a dildo on it. And the other one would be on the slab on their knees sucking the dick of their co-teacher and talking through the different techniques. And then all of the attendees would be practicing the same techniques using a banana and a condom. So I would have to go to the nearby bodega and buy them out of bananas once a week. (laughs) Oh my God. That's hilarious. (laughs) I did not buy bananas for years after working at that store. Like they grossed me out. And also, like, my freezer was full of frozen bananas. I made banana bread constantly. Yeah, I um, bet. So, like, home, whatever had been lightly used, you know? <laughs> oh, that is hilarious. But, yeah, it was weird because sucking a strap-on cock is sex. Mm-hmm. That's, like, for, for, like yeah. for many people, that is, like, the sex that they have. Yeah. And so it took a while for us as teachers to talk about that fully, that we were, like, no, no, it's okay. Don't worry. And like most of our customers are straight people and most of the employees are queer people. So it's like a bunch of queer people assuring the straight people that what we're doing is not sex, but then having very a very professional. Kind of sex. Right, exactly. And and it's like, oh, that's that's a lot. And so we sort of like transferred over to then like handheld dildos, which felt yeah. a little more abstracted and people got a lot more comfortable about that. But yeah, it was hard to teach blowjob workshops when like I taught a blowjob workshop right after I had a breakup with an ex I loved very much and I was crying and throwing up. And so I was like, oh my God, the idea that I'm going to put a dildo in my mouth, like I'm going to puke in front of all of these people. I'm going to be like, blowjobs are so easy. And then like throw up from grief and anxiety in front of everyone. Oh my God. So fortunately I like did some breathing techniques, but I had my coworker, you know, in the backstage area being like, if you throw up, you throw up, you know, try to like assure me that it was okay. Yeah. And one time we had an angry woman who ate nine bananas, like out of rage, like what? to destroy the bananas. Yes. I don't know what her whole vibe was that day, but she like came in with a bad attitude. She sat down, was not participating. Then she put the condom on the banana and started chewing it like with teeth so that we could see it, you know, like I hate this banana, you know, and then pulling bananas off of nearby chairs and just eating them. It was a lot. And then she went to the bathroom, stole a box of tampons, took one of the 
display vibrators and we give out feedback forms at the end of the workshop. And she was like, have any of you lesbians ever actually had sex with a man? You should try it. Damn. So she, was, she was really having a day. I kept that evaluation form. I was like, this is Seriously. That's like art. almost like unconsensual performance art that she was like, look at me. Look at me do this thing. I mean, that's – it sounds like you had a lot of much more difficult experiences than I have ever had in five years of talking about my own sex life publicly or even in the various forms of sex work that I've been exploring over the past three years. How did you take care of yourself? It sounds like you had supportive coworkers, but like what did you do to sort of like regenerate or do whatever you needed to do after a lot of the very fucking assholes you dealt with? That was really hard. Retail work in general, it puts you in the path of a lot of people going through a lot of stuff and there's not a ton of protection. And because you're in the service industry, you are not seen as powerful or, or treated in a way that is like acknowledging of your humanity. So yeah, my coworkers really were the saving grace. We kept each other safe. We would find non-carceral solutions, like not calling the police, but locking the store and ordering people out. Sometimes like dragging people out physically if that needed to happen. Damn. I know, New York City, Lower East Side. But then I, I also was in therapy, still am, which great, yeah, highly yeah. recommend. Always, me too, yes. <laughs> you know? <laughs> And it was part-time, so I was also filling my days with other things. I knew I couldn't take on a full-time schedule of just working on the sales floor and teaching workshops, that that was going to grind me down. So yeah. performing really did end up becoming like much more of a job around that time because I needed something where I had more autonomy and more of a sense of personal power. Yeah. On the note of performing... It was very surprising to me when I started sharing unclothed pictures of myself publicly that when I had, you know, this is my hair grown back one year and two months. I had a shaved head for six years. And so at the beginning for me, it was like, what is this container? Do I have a relationship with it if I don't have hair? Because that's always what I got complimented for. Like, am I, am I sexy to me? What does it mean? And I was shocked to months, years in, discover that many people out there do equate simple nudity with sex and me being naked with their permission to have sex with me in any way, shape, or form they want, regardless of where they are. I would love to hear your understanding and your experience specifically around like people's expectations about sex as it relates to burlesque and performance where people are unclothing themselves. So I've been solicited a number of times at shows, like with an expectation that I am performing as a way to sort of like demonstrate what the goods are that are available. So like I will have people like trying to, you know, like to hire me as a full service worker or something like that after the show. I hope they at least offered good budgets. <laughs> I think most of them could not afford me. But the that in and of itself is not like, I don't think that's wrong per se and that that had been a lot of the, like if we were in the 40s or 50s, a lot of the burlesque performers at the time would use their stage sure. performance in the same way that like a stripper at a club is like doing a stage performance to sell a private dance. So I, I don't hate that. I do think the idea that if you are in any way sexually liberated, if you are sexually expressive, if you are like interested in your own body, or if you are interested in displaying your body in certain ways, that that is open season on you or like that people can then just like project their desires or 
you know, be gross or intrusive or that they have permission to access other parts of you. I find that to be really repugnant. It feels like this is one of those things that I, I write about in the book that like, depending on my like sleep levels and hydration and like yes. how, where I, my compassion was at, I could sometimes understand that it's like, we really don't have like media literacy almost no. around that kind of stuff. So it's like people are really doing the best with what they have and what they have is bullshit. Yeah. So I have compassion for that. But then when it is something that threatens my safety or that's like a boundary pushing thing on a bad day or something like that, I will just sort of shut down and do like a hard correction. For sure. For sure. Well, and I think that's such a good point because we live in a culture that seems to thrive in lack of clarity. Like what I've learned from interviewing hundreds of people about their sex lives is that like my desire for clarity doesn't match most people's. Like, I'm like, but what do you mean? Those words are unclear to me. And so I would like you to define this one and this one and this one. And I've only just like in the last year and a half, like through sex work, through being like, why am I not very good at selling this stuff when clearly so many people think I'm sexy? There's some sort of like nuance there, right? And so it's like, yes, there could be the invitation by the being naked, but also like there are no actual norms. And we also do not have the conversational tools, which brings me to my next question for you. And we can circle back to burlesque as needed. But you are good at reading people's kinks. You are good at cold reading people's kinks on the fly. And I imagine we're going to hear a little bit about phone sex, but also like, when did you realize this? How the fuck do you do it? If people have like maybe, I don't know, neurodivergent brains that need a lot of literal stuff, do you have any advice for them? <laughs> Well, so, okay. So I'm going to start this off with like maybe the least sexy fact about me, which is that the most impactful thing I did in college was take improv class. The skills that come from improv class around listening, around watching for cues, around co-creating things on the fly, making agreements, giving gifts, asking yeah. good questions, adding information, that all of that was something that I practiced for I mean, we were very hardcore, the improv troupe I was in. So we would practice for like three times a week, like two wow. to three hours at a time. And that was like a lot of intense team make-believe. And so <laughs> that skill helped me a lot when I was in retail trying to cold read and mind read with customers who didn't have language around desire, who didn't have language around what toys they were looking for, who weren't sure what the fit was. And so I ended up doing a lot of what I think of as like being a sexy optometrist, that it's like, okay, do you mean more like A or more like B? You know, mm. like, okay, so does this vibrator look like what you're looking for? Or does this one? It's like, okay, so you don't want a vibrator. Okay, so what you may want is a dildo instead. So here are some of our dildos. Is there one that, that you feel drawn to? Let's like pick it up and squeeze it. It's like, oh, does that feel too squishy? Okay, so you may want a firmer, you know, just sort of like feeling my way through that it's not like, I can't intuit. I can't mind read for people, but I can sort of clear the pathway and use language to translate their experience. That it's like, okay, I've seen that you're looking at this one or that you haven't, like, as we've been talking, you've still been sort of like holding this toy. Like, is there something that you feel particularly drawn to, you know, just sort of having those questions that help steer people towards what they might need. And then when I got on the phone, it was sort of like the varsity level of that because- I was talking to people that I couldn't see. We're, the only thing we have are the words that we're using with each other. But then finding people who still don't have language yes. for it. Yes. Oh, 
I thought that sex work was going to be like, finally, I can show up and do the thing and I'll find people to play with because I'm so good at playing. I just need a clear frame and the world is not full of clear frames and sex work is not full of clear frames. It's the opposite. <laughs> it's the opposite. Right. And I remember there being this like phone call I had where a guy was like, oh, you know, my dick is six inches. Do you think that's big or small? And I was like, Fuck. I think it is slightly above the statistical average, but that's not what somebody wants to hear. But it's like, am I supposed to be like, you have the biggest fucking dick ever and it's going to stretch me out and fill me up? Or am I like, that's a tiny little pencil dick and right. like it's worth it? And you get, I was like, I don't know. Yeah. So yeah. I remember that was like, I was at a crossroads. I just like made a 50-50 guess at that point. <laughs> I tried to look at his like username Right. To see if there was like a clue or something like that. And then at the end of the day, I was like, this just sounds like a small penis guy. I don't know. There was something in his voice. I was like, this is a lowercase voice. Like, I'm going <laughs> to. <laughs> Damn, that's genius. I love this series of answers, too, because it does give me. I tell myself a lot of unhelpful stories about basically like I'm hopeless. And I know I've read the books and I'm like, I'm supposed to catch up to other people socially when I'm around 50. So I've got a decade and a half plus to go. But like hearing that there are concrete ways to check in. And what I'm also noticing in these stories is that there is a mixture of compassion with like allowing privacy for these people. Whereas sometimes I can be like, but what do you mean? You know, like I'll get too direct or so it's sort of like allowing them. I'm learning about like privacy and secrecy spaces, but shared secrecy. And I'm trying to dance in that. And so that's what I hear coming through in your stories and discoveries of people. Absolutely. Thank you. I've never heard that specifically articulated, but that's right. And that was actually something that we received specific training on in the retail space mm. because it's like, for example, we had strap-on harnesses, some of which had one ring. So like just for a dildo and some that had two rings with the understanding that like one opening would be for a dildo and one opening would be for a flush dick. So like if somebody wanted to do DP, but so a couple would come in and we couldn't read their genders and we weren't going to assign who was doing what or like yeah what body parts somebody had. And so we were really keeping it focused on the product rather than these people. So I would never ask, oh, which one of you is going to be wearing the strap? That it was right. more like, okay, for people who are looking for like DP that they could, you know, put a dick through, like these are our models. And for people who are looking for sort of a single dick experience, like here, you know, and to just let them say only that much and not yeah. have to give more of their life or of their biography than is necessary. Yeah, it's, it's so beautiful. And just as a person who has accidentally exploded many, 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 many potential partners who clearly wanted to have sex with me until I attempted to get clear, like, I'm like, ah, I see. I'm learning. Okay. Lovers, we are going to take a quick pause for a word from our sponsor. And they have given me notes to do a sultry female voice. So I'm very excited and I'm going to do my best. Did you know the Flora app is a safe place to open up? Embrace your desires and find like-minded people. This is the story of one couple who found the threesome of their dreams, discovered a new level of shared passion, and stepped into a whole other realm of possibilities, all thanks to Floor. As life's routines settled in, Robert and Lucy found themselves yearning to explore uncharted territories. So they downloaded Floor and embarked upon a thrilling journey of sensual experimentation, learning more about each other's desires in the process. Open-minded and adventurous, Robert and Lucy dreamt of adding a new dimension to their intimacy, sharing the touch of another woman, being witnessed and connecting in a way that transcends the ordinary. 
In Fleur's diverse and accepting community, Lucy connected with Emily, a babe craving the same experiences. So they invited Robert to the conversation. The chemistry built and anticipation heightened as they exchanged messages until finally their agreed-upon date night arrived. A gorgeous hotel was the setting for their evening of pleasure, passion, and connection. A shared exploration that fulfilled each party's desires. Fleur app celebrates the beauty of open-minded connections. It's a platform where fantasies come to life and desires are embraced without judgment. For couples seeking adventure with others or individuals keen on exploring, Fleur invites us all to a world where every desire is a possibility waiting to unfold. Download Fleur now, express your desires freely, and find like-minded people today. And on that note, I would love to hear about robot roleplay, how you discovered it. I identify kind of as a human robot. Like, I'm like, I'm just a sex robot. You just have to program me and I'll be perfect. I promise. Like, you know, because I'm a, I'm a service submissive. I work in top space a lot because I'm that subby. I'm that service oriented. And I am so curious about what robot roleplay means to you, what you love about it, maybe what you haven't explored. I, I don't know. Tell me. I don't know what I don't know. So you tell us. So when I started doing phone sex work, my deepest desire was to find myself embedded with a niche fetish community because I was like, I want something interesting. Like I've been around the block. I would like to learn something about a fetish that I don't know very much about. I'd like to have consistent clients. I'm willing to go really deep. I'd like to have more sort of emotional investment, more repeat customers, longer calls, more emotional labor, whatever, rather than sort of shorter sort of passing fancy calls. Mm. And so my first week I got a message from a member of the robot fetish community who like sent me some cash up front and was like, Hey, you seem like, I like the way you write. I like the way you present yourself. Like you seem creative. Would you be willing to do a robot role play with me? I was like, fuck yeah. Like, tell me, do I pass the Turing test? Like, what's up? Like, which era robot? I was so excited about that because I was like, I've never waded in these waters before. Yeah. And so he was so lovely and kind, like, fetishists like talking about their fetish. A lot of people, not everybody. And so he was really willing to share with me like resources and show me robot porn that he liked. And I was like reading their message boards and things like that and taking notes. And I had a little Pinterest. Like I wanted, I was like, I'm going deep on this. But of course, just robots, like robots are not a monolith. And so there would be the, the robot fetishists who wanted a robot that was malfunctioning or the robot fetishist who wanted a robot that was really subservient, like a sort of 1950s housewife robot or people who wanted like a really strong robot that could like crush them at a moment's notice or robots that could be disassembled or robots that were begging to be made human. In some cases, I think like particularly with people who were neurodiverse, having robot fetishes that didn't even seem to me to be related at all, like people who just wanted me to sort of read from a technical manual or like run diagnostics on my software and for that to be like a really erotic experience for them. And that was wonderful. I love that. Wow. Has it all been virtual or have you ever like done an in-person robot exploration? It's all been virtual and doing it virtually has permitted me to sort of use my film school skills to do like audio and some video editing so that people are really getting a lot more of what they want. Like I could do some things with like costuming or whatever, but that being able to do digital manipulation gets closer to the sort of real thing that people are are seeking. 
Right, because even in a fantasy roleplay scenario, it's like they're going to feel your flesh and beating heart. But like, oh, that's so hot. Robot play is on my bucket list, but I haven't gone that... Like, I have too long of a bucket list, even without all the subtypes. I have done some, like, statue fucking stuff, because I let, you know, bring me to life, or, like, doll stuff is, is what I'm really interested in. But I love, I love that. What about nun and religious play do you find interesting? And is it in kind of the same realm, or is that something you might bring into, like, real life with costumes? Yeah, the, we're, we're, like, veering closer into my sort of real-world interests and practices. I think I have grown up in a religious minority under a sort of, like, Christian heteropatriarchal hegemony. I think it's fun to reappropriate and fuck with iconography, imagery, like, things that are not mine that belong to a dominant people, that it's sort of like a reverse cultural appropriation almost. Mm. <laughs> it's mm. like, it's like, here I am, like, whatever, like you shoved all of these images down my throat. So now I'm going to shove these images down my throat. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, you said. So, <laughs> exactly. And like, yeah, playing with shame, playing with secrets, playing with like punishment and forgiveness. And yeah, like the whole thing is so fucking kinky. Like, Forcing other people yes. to like eat and drink things and be to on their get knees on their knees. Eat. Yeah, <laughs> come on. So like, one of my sort of pandemic obsessions was to look at any sort of foreclosures, like if there were churches that were liquidating. Because I was like, I would really like to get a confession booth oh. and just like put that in my apartment. <laughs> Dude, I have been noodling on what does a traveling sex stories confessional that I can take to different sex shops and easily set up look like? Because that's, you know, and this podcast has never been about confessions. It's been about shame smashing, but I'm like, oh, but people like it better if it's confessions. Okay. <laughs> so like, how, how could that be fun? And how can it make them feel cozy and safe and private? And, you know, able to share and divulge. Oh, my gosh. You would have one in your house? I mean, I would like to. I don't have a ton of real estate. I have a guest room. So I was like, we just put the For put now. Yeah. Place. At some point. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> your family comes to visit. You're like, oh, it's just, it's for part of an act or, you know, a rehearsal <laughs> space. <laughs> for Zoom calls. Yeah, my tiny little room that has crosses on it that you don't have to worry about. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Would you want to like dress up as a nun or do you like gender bending? Like, would you, I mean, you're a burlesque performer. So like, maybe this is a good segue too. like, you've done just like a fucking array of things. What about religious play in your own sex life would be most juicy to you if it included a costume and a willing partner to like improv play and fuck with? With my, I was talking to my ex about like doing nun and like altar boy kind of stuff. <gasps> and I'm sad that we didn't get to do it. Like, yeah. damn it. But it's still on my bucket list. But I was like, I don't want, like, I love latex nuns. I love sexy nuns. But I was like, I don't want that. I want sort of like traditional, yeah. like, I want the itchy sort of like wool, whatever their garment is made out of. Like, I want the full habit because I think yes. there's something that's so dirty about the idea of like, yeah, a nun's habit that you sort of lift up and there's nothing underneath. To me, that did something that, like, a sort of specifically, like, fetishized costume would not do. I don't know. I'm a nitpicker. I fucking love that. No, I think that's also why you are such a beautiful, specific artist, right? Like, the amount of thought and storytelling that seems to go into every piece of thing that you do is, like, truly next level. And, like, I can imagine there'd be, like, difficult parts if you live in that kind of brain. I mean, I have my own version of it. But, you know, the artistry that comes out the other side is, is very beautiful. I would love to hear about power play and how it's 
yummy for you at this moment in your life. If people go read your book, they can read a little bit about your arc with it. But I would love to hear like, why do you love cucks? How do you love subs? What's juicy about power play? Ooh, I think there's a real negotiation with my relationship to the patriarchy that comes out in the sex that I have. We live in a culture that presumes male dominance. I mean, the, first of all, that presumes heterosexuality, but that also presumes male dominance and, and female submission and for those to be like the options, the binary. And I accepted that and I assumed that I was submissive when I was younger and that there was something really satisfying about being able to accommodate somebody else, like give somebody else pleasure through becoming what it was that they wanted me to be. And that's something that I can also do as a dominant, like being a service top or something like that. But for me, what I found most compelling was like genuine suffering and psychological distress. (laughs) Which also goes with nuns. If you know about Mother Teresa, so into suffering. Oh, interesting. Oh, say more. You know, banking and blogging and all of that kind of stuff, like impact play or pain play was like, okay, I find that like to be like decently interesting and reasonably hot. But for me, the thing that is the most compelling is like, if I can really get in a person's head and like, fuck their shit up, once again, consensually, yeah. but in a way that sucks, like in a way that somebody like, they don't enjoy it, they have to enjoy their lack of enjoyment. Yeah. And so I think that's sort of like why cucks come into my world so frequently. <laughs> mm. Because what's being played with is a lot of denial that there's a lot that's dangled in front of them that they don't get to have or they don't get to experience. And that that denial is like what gets eroticized as well as the sort of imbalance of power, like the idea of their dominant being able to do whatever and fuck whomever and have this like freedom of movement and then to sort of be stuck, like happily stuck, like understanding that their role and their position in life is to be subordinate. That there's something about that. It's really enlivening living in a body that is disempowered and like discriminated against from a gender standpoint, like to be able to put that on and also to give the other person relief, like to give a man relief about his position in the patriarchy. Like, sure, why not? If that's like a side effect, then enjoy it. You know? Wow. Okay. There's so much here that I like, okay, we're not going to get lost in all of the weeds, but in your physical body, do you ever feel at odds with your own desire to fuck with cucks? I mean, you don't fuck them, right? I do not fuck them. Yes, it depends. When I have like emotional closeness and like fond feelings and a crush on the person who is the cuck, there is this sort of like self-denial that ends up happening. Then I'm like, yeah, you don't get to fuck me. And I'm like, I don't get to fuck you. You know what I mean? Like, I would, I would really like that. I think it would be nice. And there are some relationships where that's also possible, like where okay. we can sort of have sex outside of the role. But generally speaking, I am quite a patient person and I'm willing to have, and I have had, long-term sexual relationships with people where there hasn't been any penetrative sex. There's a lot that counts and that is interesting and sexy and juicy about my relationship with them that yeah. isn't necessarily geared toward that. Are there physical sensations outside of penetrative sex or is it all mental in those cases? Or I imagine a mixture, but like... Yeah, there's a mixture. Like I've dated people where they have never touched my genitals. Where like the only play is like with toys or like my hands or something like that, but they don't have permission or privileges to do even the sort of like barest of 
sexual contact with me. It's hot, right? Like it's enjoyable. And it's like, if I ever gave them permission, like this is again, me being like addicted to details. I'm like, if I ever crossed that, then it wouldn't have the same charge or power. It's a different dynamic. It's a different dynamic. Exactly. So there's, there's a lot of pleasure and a lot of physical pleasure in those relationships. It just looks a little bit different. Yeah. Are there other sensations or things that you love that we haven't talked about either in the course of like romantic fucking, partnered fucking, or just like even burlesque? Like I imagine the physical sensations of burlesque could be a whole range of things, but like physically, what does your body enjoy the most? So I have burlesque acts that include kinks and physical sensations that people associate with sort of like in the bedroom behind closed doors kind of sex. Like I have an act where I'm fully nude and I pour a bunch of candle wax on myself. Body safe candle wax, right? So you don't get burned like from the sex shop candle wax? Not from the sex shop, but body safe. So the saint candles, here's that religious stuff again. Those like saint candles are cheaper wax. It's like mixed with mineral oil so that it melts at a lower temperature. So it's not something that I would like definitely recommend to everybody. It's something I've tested out on my body. It's intense. It's so intense. Yeah, it hurts and that's the point. And like I use a lot of different colored ones as opposed to just like the white ones because I wanted to show up on stage. Those have different melting points and those get hotter because of the dyes. It's fine for me. It may not be fine for somebody else. I don't play with a lot of wax play at home just because I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to get that on my sheets too. I can't. I have. It's horrible. It's a mess. That sucks. (laughs) You're like there with the iron and the wax paper or whatever the fuck they tell you to do. It's so annoying. (laughs) So I have that act where I experience the sensation of doing like a ton of wax play with myself. I have acts where I like tie myself up in rope. And those are physical sensations that I really enjoy and like I'm open to in the bedroom. Like I've definitely dated dated a rope person for some time and that was great. I really like the sensation of biting in this sort of bitey, spitty kind of matrix. I really like that kind of stuff. I'm not that interested in like hitting, although being slapped in the face and slapping someone in the face, it's like a strong cup of coffee in the morning. You know I, mean? I love so, it. Okay. I think you're the first person who's like, not so much impact, but yes, face slapping. Cause I'm, I'm yes to all that. And people are like, not the face though. And I'm like, oh, okay. Okay. You know, if they know how to do it safely, but I love that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that there's something it's taboo. Like yeah. spanking to me feels like, you know, like, oh, I'm being spanked. I'm so bad. I'm so annoying, whatever. But it's like, you really shouldn't hit me in the face. Mm. I'm like, yes to all of it. Also, I'm sitting on a very bruised ass right now because I have a partner that loves to overwhelm me with spank. Like, I'm a high sensation seeker, a little bit spectrumy. Like, I can take a lot. And I, I love it all, especially like face slapping at the right moment before an orgasm or if I'm edging and like, you know, avoiding the orgasm. Don't you dare, you know, like, ugh. Or like, good girl. <laughs> I love all of it. Are you a giver of those types of sensations at all? or Yeah. Love to give, like down to receive. Yeah. I really like seeing what it does to other people. And I do think there's like a lot of inquiry to be done around the idea of stimming and like certain kinds of BDSM and impact play as like forms of stimming. And so I don't tend to have that same sort of response. I feel like unfortunately pretty neurotypical. So I'm kind of like, (laughs) <laughs> it's all a blessing and a curse, right? We can learn from each other. <laughs> I'm like, what's it like over there? I need best friends who will explain the world to me and co-creators. <laughs> well, okay. Are there other enjoyments, fantasies, fetishes, kinks that feel like just relevant to even maybe list here in kind of a lightning round fashion and or things you want to explore going forward? I want to be at the buffet. I don't consider myself to be like a fetishist in the sense that I have like specific things that need to be there in order for me to enjoy myself. Like there's a lot of different 
sex that I will enjoy and take pleasure from. I like to do other people's fetishes with them. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. You sound like I relate to the idea of if I had a fetish, it's curiosity around sex. And I love, I have such strong responsive desire that like each person, when I learn about them, and you seem like this to me, so this is why I'm talking about myself, but like they become my muse of the moment. And then yes. it becomes like, that's where I feel like I can do improv. Like I, you know, my main artistry used to be headshot photography. And I got really, really good at like understanding that person's goals, their needs, and then just writing them storylines that would, you know, guide them through the entire shoot. And so like the sex version of that is my personal favorite. And so like, I totally get what you're saying. Absolutely. Or at least I get my version of it. <laughs> no, that's so real. Yes. The responsive desire is like a huge thing that it's like, I want to see people tap into that place that feels so like beyond language, like to have people in that sense of like full embodied pleasure. And so whatever it is that like gets us there is kind of like cool and interesting to me. And unfortunately, like I've ended up dating a lot of people who are vanilla, <laughs> which is wild. Interesting. So I'm like, I'm like, what are you into? And they're like, you know, big boobs and blowjobs. And I'm like, yeah. I'm like, okay. okay buddy. All right. Interesting. So like wasted potential. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I really relate to that. I really relate to that. This might be a non-starter question, but the way that you might experience that little spark from someone's fetish, is there a parallel between like the way you design burlesque shows for yourself? Like it sounds like most of your act inspiration comes from some part of you. Is it is it related to your sexual self? Is there a like connection there? I don't find those two things to be particularly related in my life. That like my private expression of sexuality is so different from a public performance of sexuality. Mm. I mean, they come from the same brain, right? So there's going to be some overlap. There are going to be some common themes. Well, they'll inform each other, but it's a different experience is what it sounds like. Exactly. And so it's usually much more my narrative brain that's on when I'm creating acts. It's like much more of a writing process. So it's more like, where do I want to take people? What do I want them to understand? Maybe it's sort of like if I'm topping writing a scene with somebody that it's like, mm. I want to make you feel like this. So what are the beats that we go through in order to sort of end at that moment where you truly feel the way that I have intended and designed for you to feel? Yeah. So it's like the creative turn on and that's distinct from your own physical, sexual, emotional, mental turn on as a sexy creature. Yeah. Which I guess is like really outing me as like a control person, but like Okay. We all are to some degree, though. Like, what I've learned is, like, anytime someone's like, oh, no, I'm not in control. It's just because they think they're already in control. And then when shit hits the fan, they're like, oh, my God, I'm not. And I'm like, we never were. We never were. We just tell ourselves stories to make us feel like we are sometimes. Absolutely. Damn. Okay. What would you say if you had to just put it in a couple of sentences or paragraphs? Skills that make you a great lover. I am creative. I am not shy. I am attentive. I listen well and I speak well. I want the things I want. I want to give other people the things that they want. That's a fucking great answer. <laughs> <laughs> what are your hopes for your sexual future going forward, maybe both personally and or professionally? I hope to just keep having fun. I think that like we are not in a moment where like joy feels particularly abundant and sex and connection feels like an avenue for the experience of joy. And so that's my desire for myself. That's my desire for other people. 
like a continuation of exploration of who we are and how we have fun with each other. I fucking love that. If you could wave a magic wand and teach everyone in the whole wide world something about sex, what would it be? You get to ask for what you want. And if you could go back in time and give younger you a piece of sex advice, understanding that we are perfect, as is, we came out perfect, what age or ages would you pick and what would you say? Oh my god. I would have sat myself down at the kitchen table the day after I lost my virginity, you know, whatever the the language is that we're using around that after I had penetrated sex for the first time, to be like, it really is just not always going to be like this. (laughs) That was bad. I had bad penetrative sex once and then that relationship ended. And so I'd only had sex once. I felt like the worst non-virgin in the world. And I was like carrying that as my like albatross yeah. for some yeah. months. Oh, yeah. I was like, just hold on. Like the next time is going to be amazing. Like it's going oh. <laughs> to change so much. <laughs> That's a good one. Okay. And if you had to be a different kind of sex worker for two years, like in a world where all of us have to serve for at least two years by being a sex worker, something you haven't done yet. What other kind of sex worker would you be? Wow. Okay. So I <laughs> I would be interested in like signing up for a two-year tour of service as a club stripper, actually. <gasps> my friends who are club strippers are like some of the most wonderful people in my life. Yeah. And it was an early aspiration of mine as a little girl. Mm. And theoretically, I could do it, but I'm not in a traditional body that like strip clubs seek and search for. So I felt like sad that I wasn't mm. able to be a club stripper. So it would, I would be interested in trying that out. Mm. I love that. Also, if everyone had to be some kind of sex worker for a couple of years, imagine the variety we would get in all the places. It would change everything. Okay, well, we're not going to live in that world. But uh, okay, lastly, you have an unlimited budget to build your perfect playroom, dungeon, castle, mansion, cruise ship, whatever you want. What is it like? Okay, so <laughs> I don't know if you've seen that Netflix show, like how to build a sex room or whatever. Did you I, watch that? I actually have it. And I, so many people, because I started asking this question around the time it came out. So I need to on my bucket list. But yes, tell us, tell us. So, like, I think the show is great. I'm glad that it exists. I think they did a middling job of it. And I have a lot of aesthetic bones to pick here. (laughs) Oh no. Okay. Wow. I'm an asshole. Here we go. No, no. You have good taste and specificity and vision. Yes. And I was like, you don't need to be afraid of natural materials when you're building a sex room. I am so annoyed by the presence of that extremely cheap, crushed, like imitation red velvet. That doesn't mean sex to me. I'm like, we're, we're, so annoying. I don't like that sort of cheap sort of party store purple. I'm not into that. A lot of sex furniture has like silver hardware and I am much more of a gold girl. So I Same. feel like, okay, great. So I want golden like bronze, yeah. golden bronze. Yes. And like wood and leather and drains in the floor and like different sort of areas, different sort of regions, but not like, I don't know. I just, I felt like the whole thing, like I don't want a neon sign on the wall that says like, Mm, baby or whatever like I don't I don't need that I don't want that like I (laughs) just more taste you know what I mean like it's fucking or the opposite where it's like a dirty dive bar bathroom Mm, so you could have the entrance level is like the dirty dive bar bathroom and then the speakeasy version that takes us down to the dungeon or up to the you know maybe both the turret there's the goddess room and then the naughty people's dungeon and maybe the cucks get like a viewing space. I don't know. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, absolutely. Like cuck row or whatever. And you have to have a stage with beautiful curtains so that you can perform. 
there'd be a stage, there'd be, I guess, a rectory or, or whatever, yeah. you know, a doctor's office, you know, whatever the things are, but just not in a sex way. Like I want it to be as close to the thing as possible because yeah. I really do want, like I'm a fucking, I'm a rainforest cafe bitch. You know what I mean? Like I like the immersive experience. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I want there to be a sort of as close to the real thing as possible. Honestly, I like the Disneyland version where it's like informed by reality, but kind of taken to the next level for hard use for entertainment purposes. And just like, yes. you know, like I went, I had a doctor's appointment today. And I was looking around. And I was like, all right, this would be a very specific kind of medical fetish. I want the slightly more beautiful version <laughs> where like stuff isn't going to break. <laughs> Absolutely right. Like you can you can have it with sort of a if Frank Lloyd Wright designed a, a medical fetish room. That's what right. I want. <laughs> well, I love that. And if when I have the budget for it, I will call you and see what your consulting fees are, and we can design the fancy feast room. <laughs> this is like the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me. <laughs> fancy feast. What is the best place for people to find you on the internet? On Instagram, I'm at fancy feast burlesque. Fancyfeastburlesque.com is my website. That has a list of my social media as well as gallery information about my book, all of that kind of stuff. And links are in the description below. Lovers, go click it. Go buy the book. And if you buy the book, tell me. We'll have a little noodly book club. Maybe there'll be some sort of prize. Tell me what you want. Fancy, thank you so much for being a guest on Sex Stories. Oh, thank you for having me. <laughs>